This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. To many people, the Trump White House is a place where a kind of powder keg masculinity is on dangerous display and ready to go off at any moment. What makes Rhonda Gerlich's cultural criticism so important and so brilliantly counterintuitive is her insistence that to understand the man and the administration, you have to pay attention to the women. Over the past year, Gerlich has become one of the most original contributors to New York Magazine, where she draws on her scholarly work in the history of design, fashion, literature, and performance to write about the intersection of power, gender, and theatricality. Rhonda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you uh, for that lovely introduction, Eric. You're welcome. You recently wrote with regard to Stormy Daniels, quote, disregard any impulse to dismiss, trivialize, or even pity the women hovering around this administration, for they never fail to telegraph deeper truths. What makes this particularly true about this presidency? Well, it's true that I've been thinking all about the women of this presidency, and the first reason is that the women or female concerns, women's concerns, have been so thoroughly shunted aside. And as we know, that which gets shunted aside tends to come roaring back in importance. And it's not as though we haven't had administrations that were weak or deficient on women's issues. But I think this is the first one in my lifetime that overtly came to power, publicly dismissing the importance of not just women's issues, but certainly um, female equality, let's call it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's the most pageant-filled, most ornamental, most accessorized administration when it comes to the women. And by that, I mean, although there are very few, if any, women with voices in this administration, there are so many powerfully visual images of femininity with which Trump surrounds himself, his wife, his daughter, his female aides who are dressed according to his dictates in a certain kind of um, alluring uniform of, of a retro sort. And then the um, eruptions of women like Stormy Daniels, who I think is probably the most powerful in unsettling this silent parade of um, repressed femininity. It's a really interesting combination, the fact that women's issues have been shunted to the side, as you, as you put it, and at the same time, it's surrounded by this kind of parade of spectacular e- expressions, in a particular way that we, that, that we recognize, I think, from a lot of the visual rhetoric of fashion. Of fashion and, I dare say, pornography mm-hmm. in some way, because this is not a high fashion administration. I had a very famous fashion designer who asked never to be quoted, but a very famous person say to me that Melania Trump, in her early modeling career, was actually known to be quite a terrible model and had no real sense of uh, fashion as an art. But the look of the women with the high-end fashion and this kind of Barbie doll, bombshell figure and makeup and magazine cover look combine for something that is so out of place temporally, chronologically, and yet so recognizable, I think, to most of us from porn, from TV, from a kind of sleazy uh, Mm -hmm. level of pop culture. And I think that Trump, in part, came to power trading on that allure, which is an accessible, if you will, kind of democratized sexual commodity. 
do you see him as a master of uh, manipulating that those kinds of codes, or as someone who's so inside them that he uh, he can't but reflect them in ways that are quite, I think, happy for the uh, person who wants to analyze them? Eric, that's the question that I'm constantly wrestling with. Um, to what extent is he conscious? I think he's kind of, dare I say, an idiot savant. And I have said elsewhere that I think in some ways he follows a playbook, yes, from the great strong men of fascist history, yes, but also weirdly fashion advertising and, and um, television. And I'm thinking especially of Ralph Lauren. I've called this the Ralph Lauren presidency. And what I mean by that is Ralph Lauren was the first American commercial designer to create what's called lifestyle design, which was an immersive storyscape, a narrative of a parallel universe of wealth and luxury, an aristocracy that you can acquire rather than be born into, right? The Lauren universe is um, a branded universe of fake, preppy, American ease. It's the word that, that when aspirational is used, it's usually used in this context to talk about this kind of uh, particular consumer desire. Precisely. And we know that the particular story of Ralph Lauren is of a boy from the Bronx who sort of traded away that ethnic um, working class self for um, this alternative universe. Trump was doing a version of that in his businesses long before he ran for office. The real estate, yes, but then it expanded, as you know, into a university, food, jewelry, clothes. His daughter does the same thing for women. And so I think they successfully created a Trump brand that people aspired to, which was a little less blue chip than a Ralph Lauren, but had this underpinning of sexy naughtiness and um, the absence of the need for merit. So really quickly accessible. And then in my mind, it's as though he were this brand logo that stepped down off the commodity and came to life. What would an aspirational brand logo say if it could speak a cartoon? And that's what he said. And so to the extent that it's conscious, I think it was an extension of a certain business strategy that manipulates desire. But I think since he is so subject to that desire himself, it's unconscious for him. One of the things that's interesting about that Ralph Lauren model is that to me, and it's one of the things that struck me, I think, when when Trump was first, when he was emerging in the the primaries a couple of years ago, it seemed that there was something very recherche about it. It reminded me of something from the the 1980s and 1990s and and a particular kind of aspirational fashion idea that I, I thought had really sort of disappeared after Reagan to a certain extent. I mean, to me, I would have dated that as from the arrival of the preppy handbook, but dying out by the time that the first Bush administration comes into power, and certainly almost buried by the Clinton years. So that's one thing that's always curious to me about the way that the Trump aura um, operates and the Trump brand operates. It, it, it seems so reversed in time and from another decade, but from one like 30 years ago. I have been thinking about that, as a matter of fact. And I think you're right to look back to the Reagan years when we had another performer become president. That was a Hollywood golden age of Hollywood throwback. And I think his appeal to a lot of people was the same appeal that old movies still have. Um, For example, the appeal that 1930s movies had in the 30s when it was a depression and there was a kind of aspirational, glorified wealth uh, sheen of beauty and uh, polished sex and class that people longed for and looked at. And Reagan, in his way, had recreated a, a, a patina of wealth and well-being in the city on the hill and so forth that was 
appealing in the 80s. And the nostalgia that he mined as well. I mean, that, that, that he was happy to say, let's look back at the silver back. screen moment and, and old Hollywood and Bill right. Blass excellence. For... Yes, and he and his wife embodied that and um, were dressed in that manner and had their posse of friends from Hollywood. The difference is we were looking at the Reagans from the distance of the velvet seat in the cinema and the screen. The aspiration, the pop culture aspect, the seduction that the Trumps had was more as if we were all sitting together somewhere. He was not at a distance. He was. The screens now are so tiny. We carry them with us in our pockets, mm-hmm. and we are with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this immersion in screen culture has taken us over so completely. It's the difference between cinema, old television, like uh, serials from the 80s, like Dynasty, and reality TV and the Kardashians. My students speak of the Kardashians as if they were Greek gods whom we all know and refer to. They don't preface what they say. They say, Kendall says, well, Kim did yesterday on social media. And even though he's in his 70s, Trump, because of what we just talked about, because of his um, complete immersion storyscape of commodities that he was running for years and reality television, he seemed already a part of this constant screen culture that is not distinct from us, that we may aspire to, but in an intimate, physically uh, proximate way that is very different. And I think it's more dangerous. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting is that people do talk, you know, Reagan is to uh, the film screen as Trump is to the television screen, when actually I think it's a smaller screen that we're talking about, or is the uh, inability to distinguish between those two different scales of screen yes. and what that immediacy represents, which I, which I think is... I think is really fascinating. I mean, the other the other administration that, that really had a fashion moment in a very different way and one that we're sort of replaying now again and again is the Kennedy administration and whatever fashion could come to represent that eternal youth or some fresh promise or something like that, which I know that it exists on some level in the way that the Trump universe broadcasts particular kinds of codes of fashion, but I can't quite figure out how they ultimately square. It may be just some kind of eternal promise that's that's attached to fashion. I don't know. Well, I've been thinking about JFK, and I just recently wrote something, in fact, that had to do with the um, 60s and fashion iconicity in the 1960s and its connection to today. But I would say that the connector between those two things you mentioned is actually the Obama administration, which I think was far closer to a resurrection of Camelot than anything we're seeing now. And if we are seeing echoes of it today, I think it's an attempt to de-ethnicize it and popularize it to a, a grotesque and I think very a hate-filled degree, but it is, I see why you say it. So I, I think when the Obamas uh, took the White House, there was a feeling of genuine exhilaration and promise, again, that reminded me of what surrounded the Kennedy administration. There was this beautiful young family. It seemed mm-hmm. a, like a turn of events that that would bring uh, political improvement and, and a youth quake and so forth, and, and we definitely saw that during the um, eight years of the Obama administration, not least also because Michelle Obama became something of a fashion icon, a democratic, more popular fashion icon. In the past year, what we've seen, I think, is a kind of um, pantomime, soulless version of commodification of women that's quite different, obviously, but which is trying, nonetheless, to use some of those cultural cues that the Obama administration used. I see it periodically it would be disavowed if you asked. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the comparisons on social media, the kind of the vicious remarks sometimes about um, Michelle Obama in contrast to the classy, quote unquote, Melania, who is 
a fashion icon of sorts, but silent, but has no apparent politics and, frankly, is white. And I think that's one of the um, the hateful reasons why the comparison is drawn. Just to shift a bit, um, you brought this up a minute ago. One of the other modes that you've been called upon, I think, to write uh, a good bit about frequently is pornography. And, and I've noticed that the, the way that you've expressed a kind of frustration with the way in which uh, pornography has been written about in the media. How does the media fail us in writing about pornography, which is such a central part? I mean, it's the silent uh, partner in the, the history of technology over the past three decades, and it's so prevalent for anyone uh, 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 who goes online. I mean, it's just curious that there's such a expression of disbelief that it exists in the world. The reason most uh, most recently that I have been uh, called upon to write about it is, of course, uh, the Stormy Daniels case. But I think she is a pivot, a central turning point in how we should be talking about pornography. The thing I have been truly irate about is that in discussing this particular current event, the mainstream media and some very distinguished reporters, both in print and uh, in broadcast news, express their own disgust, distaste for even needing to mention that she is an adult film star, that she is a porn star. They talk about her at arm's length. They say disparaging things. Everyone has done it. Um, It is despite themselves that they have to talk about this. They feel degraded by it. To me, this is misogyny. Um, How so? Well, because... I think porn is omnipresent in our culture, as you say, and I doubt that most of the people expressing this disdain are unfamiliar with it entirely. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy to project one's shame or embarrassment at ever having an acquaintance with porn onto the women whose work it is. In disparaging Donald Trump's relationship with this woman, I feel the media has just been replicating the misogyny of the Trump administration, and she is a a useful tool for that. It's disavowal, and porn itself is a form of disavowal also. It's not that I'm a big fan of porn, but I see it as an expression of America's, in particular, discomfort with matters sexual, and we tend to be both prudish and extremely prurient about it. Mm -hmm. And we see that in any discussion Uh, that emerges from this underworld we're never supposed to speak of in polite society. And the Trump presidency, arguably, is about a certain segment of the population feeling relief that he speaks what no one else dares speak, right? This is what we're always told, that he came to the presidency daring to say the unsayable. Frankly, a lot of that is unsayable things that should remain unsayable. Uh, Racist things, misogyny, uh, xenophobia, take your pick. But it was also a kind of bravado sexually that perhaps a a lot of people would like to express. And having a porn star love affair is part of that bravado. But since porn is about pushing aside human connection sexually, I think we need to be very careful not to reproduce that repression, that disavowal when talking about a normal human woman who happens to have her work be part of that, which is so integrated in society, but never spoken. I think if we can have a more organic relationship to that, perhaps we won't have the degree of disavowal that leads to an eruption like Trump, who, to my mind, frankly, is far more pornographic and obscene than any woman who happens to be a sex worker. Well, that's what I understand as much as, I mean, I think to the extent that it can be really put that way, that Trump is symptomatic of that kind of pornographic, I don't want to call it the pornographic imagination, but something like the pornographic condition. I think it's interesting that writing about sexuality and desire and gender is still such a such a difficult proposal. 
Um, I mean, I think by contrast, when I think about the arrival of cultural studies um, in the American um, Academy in the 1980s and the, uh, the academic study of style and of fashion, I think that behind it there was some kind of liberational component or aspect. I think I know what you mean, and I think I think about this all the time. I've been writing about fashion and style for many years now, and I can tell you that the response that I've gotten over the decades has only slowly changed. There has always been a slight disapproval within the academic universe to writing about fashion. And I don't think it's all that different from the disdain you see the media express towards matters of sexuality or even pornography. To take pleasure in things, and that's what porn is about, that's what fashion and style are often about, pleasure is very frowned upon in America. And I tell my graduate students, in fact, I tell all my students to write about things that they're passionate about and to tell themselves the story of how they got to that interest. They don't need to write overtly about their biography, but they need to know the connection between the most youthful, exuberant joy in something and why they're choosing to spend their intellectual and and academic life writing about it now. I take that advice myself, and it's led me more and more to things that I loved as a child, things I talked about with my mother, for example, things I talk about with my women friends. But I think that there is an aversion to pleasure in writing and reading, just as there is an aversion to avowing sexual pleasure in America and keeping it as a recreation or as a shameful secret or as something for girls. And the more we can integrate those things, I think the more powerful intellectually our work is, and I think the more honest it is, and the more democratic and feminist it is. And it's true that fashion and fashion theory became more of an issue in the United States and the academy, maybe in the 80s. But I think it's taken longer for it to take hold, to have a firm footing here. While in England, for example, in the UK, it was much more of a normal topic uh, earlier. And that's in part because of their open Marxist tradition in the universities. Writing about material culture goes back to Raymond Williams and before, and there's um, an acceptance of it there. In fact, I find my, my colleagues in the UK are often far more embracing of the stuff I want to do. I also think that in recent years, we've seen in commercial publications like New York Magazine, where I write a lot, a more interest and greater acceptance of more intellectual, more academic approaches. Many years ago, I wanted to write for magazines. I always thought it would be more exciting to both write for academic journals and the general public. I just love conversation. As you know, I always say this, I love to talk and have lots of people talk to me, and I think we all learn that way. But when I was younger, I tried to write for some women's magazines, and I even got interviewed by a top women's magazine editor, a very prominent lady, who brought me in to see if she would be able to use me, and she gave me a test, right? She sent me home with a stack of her own glossy magazine and told me to critique the content and write something I would like to see in the future and and write a kind of um, counsel for how I might improve the magazine. Mm-hmm. So I was very exhilarated by this, and I went home, and I took it very seriously, and I, and I did that, and I brought it back to her. And she said, essentially, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't as though I had done something outlandish, but I had thought to put more of my own background and training into it, and I thought it could be a little more literary or a little more political or have more books or, you know, or connect books and fashion and so forth. And she said, it will never sell. It's hopeless. It's, you know, sorry, dear, basically. Fast forward probably 20 years. And basically, that's what I do now. And people like it and people ask me for it. And I published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And I think that's a very healthy sign. And I don't know 
what exactly has caused that. Yeah, I was just curious how, how you might like finally account for that. I'd like to say that feminism has done some of that. I'd like to say that maybe eight years of Obama and a kind of opened discourse about race and class and alterations in the university, too, in curriculum has perhaps changed the staff at these places. But honestly, I'm not entirely sure what's done that. Maybe social media and technology, because uh, my students like to say, we have all of knowledge at our fingertips. And I tell them, well, be a little careful. That's not exactly Mm -hmm. true. But it is sort of true that we now have perhaps a more immediate relationship to all kinds of writing and thinking. So it's less foreign to combine them. I think it will increase. And that makes me very happy. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting too that so many of these kinds of conversations we we were talking about this I think at one other point are taking place in sections of newspapers like the style section or in magazines like New York which has become just such an interesting place with writers like another one of our fellows Rebecca Traster and some kinds of conversations and and writing about issues and a level of intellectual rigor that you would not necessarily historically associate with some of those parts of the newspaper. Um, and I think that's really kind of an incredible thing. Is there is there any kind of change that you sense of, uh, also among younger writers who want to be part of this uh, this conversation and want to write about, write about style, write about fashion? I think it is changing. I think it's changing on, for many reasons on different fronts. First of all, it's changing because of the nature of journalism, as you know, with paper dissolving, you know, magazines and, and printed media in such peril. The replacement of the constant Internet journalism has its downside, we all know, but it also has the upside of, of being far more democratic and inviting all kinds of voices so that I see writing by people who might not have been published in Vogue online for all kinds of internet journals. And from there, they have a portal into some of the more established places. So that's just one very simple logistical reason. Another thing is fashion, the fashion industry has changed. And it's no longer just a top-down, great genius, the collection several times a year system. And now you're probably familiar with the see now, buy now change in the industry, which is runways being shown on YouTube and people being able to buy things immediately instead of waiting for the stores to then have the clothes in them, which require trucks and months of of time. So uh, again, in a logistical way, the fashion industry has become so instant, so immediate, and so deeply connected personally to the tiny screen on someone's pocket in any country in the world who can press a button and buy something that he or she just saw presented on a runway. That immediacy creates a kind of critical and theoretical immediacy, too. So all kinds of brain power is being uh, addressed to fashion. Also, young people, people of color, people who do streetwear are now becoming very famous indeed in the fashion industry. Most recently, and this is something my students have been all excited about, um, the very young and interesting Virgil Abloh. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was, he still is. He's a young African-American designer who had collaborated with Kanye West, for example. He had a line called Supreme, and it's sort of streetwear, athletic-inspired wear. He was just appointed artistic director at Louis Vuitton. What that tells us is that the big doyen houses of Europe are looking to put fresh blood and new ideas into their lines. And then I see my young students, kids who probably never would have studied fashion 20, 30 years ago, young men too, are all abuzz and bring their own uh, knowledge base to it, which can include music and street culture and a different kind of politics. 
And they're just a few years away from being the next fashion journalist. So mm-hmm. it's not just going to be this rarefied, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis in that movie, Phantom Thread version, although that's interesting for another reason. It's going to be a crowd looking at it from every which way. Well, that's a fascinating thing about uh, about fashion. It really does function in some kind of way as a sign of signs, and and uh, we can find our way into it in so many so many different ways. And I think what what you're doing in particular is extremely interesting. I just want to ask you, with the with the few minutes that we have left, how has writing, uh, you know, on a regular basis, on a weekly basis for for New York, how is that? Uh, fed back into your own um, your own academic writing and your own academic projects or projects you might be thinking about? It has a, a huge effect. And it's not just my writing for New York Magazine. Learning to be a journalist has helped me in every way, not just conceptually, but mechanically. First, The first thing I have to address is that it helps you mechanically. When you write on deadline, when you write for something that will appear tomorrow, you concentrate the mind and you develop a facility. It changes your tone and it changes your pace. And I'm grateful for that. For all the times I've you know, knocked my head against the wall in agony over it, I'm grateful for it. The other thing is the journalistic voice that you need to develop, even though mine is very obviously informed by my academic training, is just clearer. And it's not just that it's clear to other people. It makes it clearer to me. And so I read myself and I think, oh, that's what I want to write my next academic book about. And I can see it in a way because it's filtered through my imagined reader who is not just my colleague at the university. And one thing that is paramount in my mind that I have been seeing in my own work and is part of a project I I want to work on is this concept of disavowal. We were talking about pornography and and what is shunted aside and what uh, culture refuses. And in writing about Stormy Daniels, now I'm, I've written several pieces about her, I keep coming back to this notion of disavowal and bodily disavowal and erotic disavowal, which I have written about in my Lowy Fuller book and other books, but now I see that I really want to write about it in terms of climate change, and, and that's a project that I'm working on, the relationship between bodily disavowal, the disavowal of climate change, and performance and theater and performance. Mm, that's fascinating. That sounds like a really interesting topic. Um, I hope so. Yeah, and uh, that I I, I want to see the, the the fruits of this project. So I hope that you will absolutely embrace it, and I look forward to talking to you about it the next time we sit down. Oh well, thank you. That's encouraging. Thank what you. a pleasure, Rhonda. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 